What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Here I saw a dappled wonder settling across the fields, hovering on angel wings, brandishing a blazing shield. That's from the trailer for The Underground Railroad, director Barry Jenkins' adaptation of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Colson Whitehead. The 10-part series debuts this weekend on Amazon Prime. Yes, we're straying a bit from the film spotting part of our mission this week, but where the director of Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk goes, we follow. We absolutely do. Also this week, 1949's White Heat, the final film in our 40s noir marathon. All that and more. Where Ma goes, White Heat's Cody Jarrett follows. Ahead on film spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. We wrap up the 40s noir marathon this week, Josh, with James Cagney in White Heat. This has long been a blind spot. I have wanted to remedy, needed to know, needed to understand where that memorable final quote came from. And now I can finally say I do. Will Jimmy Cagney win our Savage Award, we're calling them, for Best Actor of the Marathon? We will have to wait to find out next week on the show when we share those awards, but he's got a fighting chance. If he doesn't, I don't want to be the one to tell him that he lost it. That's for (laughs) sure. Good point. Good point. Before we get to White Heat, it's the Underground Railroad. With his last two films, Barry Jenkins established a unique, intimate, unmistakable filmmaking style. How does that translate in a 10-part Amazon series? Where do they go? The ones that run away and never return. There's nothing here but suffering, pain, and suffering. It is time to go. Girl in that bulletin is wanted for the murder of a child. Man lost my mom, then me. Ain't no way he ever given up on finding me. There's anger in you. It'll fuel you. Yes. What's the worst kind of fuel? The worst kind. Savagery man is capable of when he believes his cause to be just. I was certainly excited to see the Underground Railroad. Josh, at least the couple episodes I was able to fit in this week for this discussion because... As you know, we're both big Barry Jenkins fans on the show. Moonlight was in my top five the year it came out. If Beale Street Could Talk was my number one film of its year, 2018. But I have to confess, I was also dreading it 
a bit just based on the title, just based on what I suspected the subject matter would be. There's that element of physical brutality that I imagine would be part of this show. But I was less worried about that and really more focused on the toil of watching people emotionally suffer and suffering along with them. And that's certainly something we've come to expect from Barry Jenkins' work. And then you said something last week on the show, Josh, I think you had already caught up with an episode or two that gave me hope. You said, it's not really what you think it will be or something to that effect. And I thought, okay, maybe I'm in for a big surprise here and maybe it will be a relatively pleasurable watch. And then when I admitted to you today in our Slack that I was going to have to binge these two episodes just prior to recording, you said binging may be harmful (laughs) to mental health. Hmm. And I knew that I was in for an experience. It didn't take long into the first episode to understand exactly why you said it. I'm curious, were you able to have a non-binging experience with the Underground Railroad? And if so, would you recommend it to others? And how exactly were you surprised by the Underground Railroad, a work that at once could surely be described as historical fiction, but also maybe even science fiction or alternative history with a fair amount of horror as well. So what did surprise you the most about it? Yeah, it was that element. And I do think we should tread lightly in how we describe um, explicitly it. Ha- this series has those qualities in terms of the plot and what happens. But that was I got a hint of that somewhere. I think it was on Twitter. What I was referring to on last week's show that um, it is absolutely historically set, but does have this, I don't know what you would call it, fantasy as well, magical mm-hmm. realism element yeah. maybe. I've been thinking of a of a term like history askance, you know, this this fantastical side eye to the realities of life under American slavery that that the series has and also just the seemingly infinitely evil ways that white people have subjugated people of color over the country's history. Um, it, it touches on as it the series proceeds, it touches on, um, you know, different elements of history than just the one plantation where it starts in that first episode. That first episode is so much to handle. And Mm -hmm. it's what, an hour and eight minutes and the degradation, it, it is as intense as anything I believe we've seen in something like 12 Years a Slave. Um, there are other, works that this series so far seems to be in conversation with. I want to get to maybe later in our discussion here, but that first episode is so intense. I think you do have to get to the second one where that history askance element is revealed. And that gives you, I think it gave me a little more breathing room um, and saw that this is interested in things, even though it's definitely in that slavery drama tradition, it's also interested in some different things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say to your to your other question, as people get into this, and I do believe all 10 episodes are going to be available at once, if you can give these space to breathe. So our experience was we did watch the first episode uh, alone one night, and as I said, a lot to process there, even as it sets up the story very effectively. Uh, And then we did watch episodes two and three back to back, and that was just too much. I mean, both of us said the next morning, you know, like not a good night's sleep (laughs) doing that. We also, you know, did it just before bed, but still decided like the next night we were just going to watch one. 
And mm-hmm. and now and then I even said like, okay, I've seen you know for now talk about it on the show. Let's pull back and absolutely want to finish this, but maybe get into like one a week rhythm or something mm-hmm. moving forward because um, it's not just, you know, because there's so much to take, but I think that is the right way to give the work the attention it deserves as well. I've never been a big binger. Uh, Debbie is more like that. I mean, she'll she'll kind of plow through, you know, half a yeah. season of Arrested Development in a night or more. Um, and even with sitcoms, I find like after a while I need to to take a break. But in particular, I would say with um, with the Underground Railroad, give these episodes time to breathe. G- mm-hmm. Give yourself time to process what they're going after in each distinct setting that so far has been given to us with these individual episodes, even though they do focus on this main character, Cora, played by Tuso Mbedu, um, who in the first episode escapes the plantation and kind of follows her and her companion, Caesar, played by Aaron Pierre, who escapes alongside her. You know, it follows them and gets into their stories, but you get very different settings each time. And so there's a lot to wrap your mind around in in each of these. So that would Mm -hmm. be my advice. Yeah. Another way that your wife and I are more alike than your wife and you (laughs) a little bit more obsessive, a little bit more compulsive. If I'm into something, I really want to dive in and I am susceptible to binging. In this case, I definitely feel that your approach is the right one. And it's not because it's so harrowing that it's unbearable or that it's unwatchable at all, but I think it does require that time to breathe and to sit with it and to process it. And that also speaks to the other reason why I'm absolutely going to continue and finish the series and recommend it to everyone listening. And that's that it is constantly surprising you in some way, not just episode to episode, in which there are sort of broader more startling revelations, but really just moment to moment. I mean, scene to scene, there's enough here that takes you by surprise that doesn't spell itself out to you and really require scrutiny that it has me really wondering what could possibly be next in the next episode. And we will dance around the other genre elements here maybe at play. I will just say that, of course, I expected a show about slavery to inform our modern perspective on race relations in our country. This goes into a realm where it's so relevant. And again, I'm only talking about through two episodes so far. It's so relevant that it almost makes you feel like these characters have entered a time warp without it actually taking that full on plunge Mm -hmm. into that science fiction realm. And I'll get back to the, the suffering and the physical suffering here for a moment. There is a scene, maybe even just a quarter of the way through, halfway through the first episode, where we watch a slave who has been caught trying to escape be returned to his sadistic master. And to use him as an example to the other slaves, he not only has him whipped brutally and Yes, I'm not sure that there are really that many degrees of being whipped that aren't brutal, but this is on another level even to prior beatings, prior whippings we've seen in the episode. And Jenkins does focus on the flesh, even being torn away from the body in this moment. And then that's not not enough, Josh. 
we watch this character be set on fire. And in that moment, that's where I was really thinking, okay, what have I gotten myself into? Do I have the fortitude to really withstand this? And there's a moment where he goes up in flames and you think, okay, like a lot of movies or shows that show this type of horror, we then can kind of maybe pan away from it or some kind of crane shot pulls away, whatever it is. And we get to move on and we think, well, it's over. Not only do we not have to watch it anymore, but even that person, that character must be done suffering by now. Maybe they're, maybe they're dead. And just when you're thinking that Barry Jenkins cuts to a shot and it's brief, but he cuts to a shot from that man's point of view. Yeah. Looking out through the smoke as he's being engulfed and it doesn't necessarily intensify the agony. It's not as if it feels like Barry Jenkins is trying to exploit that moment to make us even suffer along with the character more. It actually, my experience was, it wasn't just about trying to put me in his place, so to speak. And it's interesting. I came across a quote today where Jenkins said he deliberately approached this material as a TV series versus a feature in large part because he was supremely aware of the intensity of the suffering he was going to have to depict. And he wanted people watching. He wanted viewers to be able to kind of be in control of their experience with it versus maybe going into the theater and you're sort of a captive audience. If you're watching this at home, streaming on Amazon Prime, and that moment is too much, you can do what I did in that moment. I came across this quote after I saw it. I did that in the moment. I paused it. I just had to pause it for a second. Maybe that's not the purest experience I should be having with it, but it's the experience Jenkins certainly, as a filmmaker anyway, has said he's okay with and expects of viewers. If it was two hours of that trauma, if all of it was compressed that we're going to get over the course of this 10-episode series, if it was compressed down into two hours or even two and a half hours, not only would that not be good for any viewer's mental health, you then have the ability, as I said, to maybe step away from it, even if it's just for a moment, and then kind of balance yourself and go back to it. I still don't know what to do with that shot, that point of view shot of, Mm -hmm. uh, I think the character's name is Big Anthony, played by Elijah Everett, because, you know, you've laid out nicely some good possibilities there in terms of strengthening our identification with Big Anthony and um, forcing us to look and not pan away. Those, I think those very well could be it. It's so quick. It, it, it's like it, you blink, you could miss it. And I think it mm-hmm. might return a second time in that scene very briefly again. And it's very curious to me because um, it was almost so quick. I don't, I didn't have an immediate reaction to it where, where I like knew what to do with it. And as I said, I'm still trying to figure that out, but I do know that it stands significantly apart from the way the camera mm-hmm. is handled so far throughout the series, which is much more familiar to what we get in Beale Street and what we get in Moonlight, which is that gently floating, almost as if the camera is just floating on a breeze among the characters, even in conversations. It, it doesn't pan from one person to the other. It certainly doesn't cut, but it just kind of drifts from one face as they're talking and then drifts back to the other one. Um, and those are, as I said, of a piece with his previous work. But to me, I wonder if they don't always seem to fit here. There's a romanticism to that lilting camera and it completely fit in If Beale Street Could Talk, which was, you know, in some ways a romance between Stephen James and Kiki Lane. 
but but it doesn't always seem as fitting here, you know? And and then we get something like that out of the blue, that bolt of POV, mm-hmm. which is so startling and in its contrast. And I don't know that there are a lot of examples of that in the other episodes that that I've seen. Interestingly, the fourth one, I believe, no, the third episode, uh, which is set among this um, really religious cult, um, there is this, there is an instance of someone being burnt. It's not quite as graphic, but fire is involved, and we don't get a similar point of view. We're very much removed from it, and there's there's a different element of horror to that sequence. I, I'll just say, but yeah, I'm still trying to work out how Jenkins' aesthetic, which which as I said um, at the very top, is very distinct. Um, it's also the lighting here that we yeah. have, which is like this honey sun, right? That's sometimes shining right into the camera. Um, I like how it echoes in the in the warm spotlight of of a train when we see a train. And it's just, you know, it puts us in, I don't know, I guess the warmth is it's kind of jarring to me that there's yes. that element of warmth with uh, which I associate with Jenkins that is sometimes given to moments of intimacy, scenes of inti- intimacy between some of the enslaved characters, but also is just the way it's capturing daily life. And um Another touch of his is the focus on faces, you know, where people's faces are often directly looking into the camera. Yes. Again, it's used to to give us this sense of adoration in Beale Street, but it's used here in episode two. Adam, how about the moment where it's used um, for this deceitful white woman uh-huh. who is teaching Cora um, something? And, and we've yes. learned at this point that she's deceitful, but she kind of gets that intimate camera shot. So I'm still working through, and maybe here's where we can say this is a still processing <laughs> conversation, yeah. and we have the the right to change anything we say when we do finish the series and maybe do a little bit of wrap up. But Jenkins' own aesthetic, I, I'm I'm still trying to to reckon with how he's applying it to this subject matter. Hmm. Yeah, that shot is another one I had in my notes. I think it's one of the more memorable single shots in these first two episodes in terms of that woman talking directly to our main character, Cora, and she's so close to the camera that she becomes, despite her sort of overly pleasant nature, she becomes almost grotesque. There's something monstrous about her all of a sudden in that moment when previously we have viewed her completely differently. So I actually really like that use of the close-up there and that use of point of view, which is another thing that we do get a fair amount of, not necessarily in the close-ups, but a fair amount of characters looking right at us. There is this sense of maybe indictment, but at least sort of implication, maybe another I word you used earlier, just identification. And Jenkins, in this case, is a little bit more, here's another I word, insistent on it. But we think about Barry Jenkins and his appreciation for and the influence of Wong Kar Wai on his work. He's talked about it here on the show when he came on to talk about Moonlight. And because of the use of point of view, I was thinking of Jonathan Demme a lot, actually, in this yeah, film, sure. especially in those kind of moments with those close-ups. But we had a similar discussion about if Beale Street could talk, which you also liked, but I liked a lot more than you. And I went back and looked at my notes from that review. So many of them, Josh, apply <laughs> to these first two episodes of the Underground Railroad. You know it's him. He's working with James Laxton again as a cinematographer. The use of color is so vivid that you do 
really feel like it's Jenkins right from the opening. And there is the opening that's sort of a little prelude where we see characters. I'm imagining we're seeing characters in the future. Perhaps the the show is jumping ahead and giving us some foreshadowing, even though it's all out of context and we don't really know what it is. He is using time and slow motion in an interesting way that we've seen him do before characters even kind of suspended or falling in space, moving backwards in space. But then we get to that conversation that happens between Cora and Caesar. And yes, warmth is the word. We know they're slaves. We know that there's nothing positive about their life. And there's even a lot of friction between each other. This isn't like Stephen James and Kiki Lane in If Beale Street Could Talk, where right away when we meet them, we know they're madly in love with each other and we want them to stay together forever. We don't know how we feel about these two characters because they don't even really know in this moment how they feel about each other. And there is a lot of tension. And yet, despite that tension and despite their circumstances and it being this sweltering southern landscape that we're maybe used to seeing in a lot of other depictions of slavery on screen, it's similar to if Beale Street could talk and that it's autumnal. There's a lot of greens and oranges and yellows and browns. And it's so it's so soothing in a way. And I don't know if it's so much about Barry Jenkins trying to give these characters dignity as just allowing for that dichotomy to exist simultaneously. The beauty of the world, the beauty of life and the horror of it. And I had a line back when we talked about if Beale Street could talk that I think applies here. It's as if Jenkins is saying, only when you see just how beautiful the world can truly be, can you really understand how ugly it is and, and truly feel that ache. It doesn't, it doesn't distract. For me, it only amplifies, I think, in the right way. Yeah, Beale Street, for me, was all about what's lost when racism has its way. It's, it's mm -hmm. the beauty that's lost, um, absolutely. Another Jenkins touch that I, I think we see here is just his talent for finding talent. I oh, mean, the, these two, Embedu <laughs> uh, as Cora, what I love is that she's shivering but set you know she's she's a victim certainly but also a survivor and yes and sh there's a personal fire also what i've latched on to and am almost more intrigued about than anything else is the relationship with her mother who we barely see um but we know that her mother when cora was much younger a young girl fled herself escaped herself mm -hmm. but left cora behind i think the opening line to the series is the first and last thing my mama gave me was apologies right and so that becomes a through line where just there's there's little returns to that relationship and embedu captures how cora has grief there but also real anger at her mother just trying to understand how she could have left her behind mm -hmm. um and and that is um you know th that's just kind of a an interpersonal intimate element of being enslaved that I don't know a lot of other dramas have given attention to. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Embedu is so good as, at capturing that. And then Aaron Pierre is Caesar. You know, he knows what he knows how to do is return that Barry Jenkins gaze, that oh, yeah. gaze that the camera, yeah. um, and I think, I think Stephen James did this really well also, but when the camera settles on his face, he looks back unguarded. 
right? Open. And he's at once in doing that, he's at once a completely unique person that we feel like we're getting to know intimately and also something of a Rorschach for your own conflicted feelings about what he's experiencing. Mm-hmm. So Pierre has that that sort of face as well. And um, and Jenkins, you know, so far goes back to it again and again. Well, it helps when you have not just the face Aaron Pierre has, but the eyes Aaron right, Pierre yes. has, which when you Google it, it seems that those are his natural eyes and not contacts, though that wouldn't surprise me either because there is something happening. I'm hoping it's not just the way this is streaming for me, Josh. There is something happening with eyes in this series where they take on a little bit of a twinkle almost in some shots. It's as if he is playing with that idea of magical realism in some instances. I'm looking at him online. Maybe he is wearing contacts in the series because I think of them as a little bit more of a brown or a goldish color. But in the pictures I'm looking at, they're almost like sea blue. But either way, they're they're just magnifying something that is that is natural to him and is really pretty stunning on screen. Now, Imbedu as Korra, there is from the moment you meet her, a defiance that feels not just something she's projecting outward because of that rage and that trauma that she has lived through and is living through. It's as if it's it's ingrained into every fiber of her of her body and her being. There's a weight that she is carrying that you feel in the first moment you even just see her on screen. And then when she does start to have that conversation, we hear her in voiceover and then that conversation with Caesar before the trauma is even fully revealed. You get the sense of it. You really feel like you understand. The other thing that's pretty amazing about the performance is She is so defiant and she is so set to use your word, Josh, that even though she must be when they're standing next to each other anyway, they look like they're about eight inches apart in terms of size. Yeah, she's she's diminutive or at least presented that way. She's presented as small and he is very tall. And yet he feels tiny almost next to her. (laughs) And it's not because of anything he is doing or isn't doing. He's giving a really good performance, but there is something so forceful and there's so much power in that diminutive body that you really can't take your eyes off her. You know what, as you're describing her, she almost makes me think, we talked about how Viola Davis in Ma Rainey was formidable, this formidable presence. Mm -hmm. It's almost like Mbedu has that and she has, but she's a quarter of the size as Davis was in that movie, you know, but it's that same presence that, that she brings to the screen here. And yeah, as far as, um, Pierre and commenting on his eyes, it's even mentioned in that second episode, right? Joel Edgerton has a supporting part here as a bounty hunter who is on their trail. And at one point he encounters, um, he encounters Caesar and even remarks on his eyes. Yes. So here's something I wanted to bring up. And again, early on, um, have the right to take take this back. But I do, I have gotten the sense so far that the series can sometimes feel, at the same time, it feels too fast and too slow. And I guess what I mean by that, uh, you, I think you were talking, Adam, about how there's these scenes like they deserve your attention and they're very languid and you can be, you can just kind of sit in them. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a, that's a good thing. I think that's what Jenkins, Jenkins has a talent for. So these, this episode somehow because of that do feel slow. It can feel like a scene is going on for a couple of minutes yet in terms of plot, 
they pack so much in. And sometimes with characters who we meet for the first time and likely aren't going to meet ever again, um, there's one character like that in the second episode. Certainly that third episode I mentioned in this religious cult, um, we spend a lot of time with a married couple who I'm almost certain we're not going to meet again. And that's where it feels like it's almost moving too fast for me. It, it just doesn't... Episode three in particular, it doesn't really have the delicacy of something like Moonlight or, or Beale Street. It gets a little strident. The new characters are maybe thinly sketched. And Jenkins' characters, you know, are almost always fully formed. You can count on that from him. So um, I feel like this is maybe a challenge of the format, clearly. And it's maybe something we'll just have to watch, you know. But it did occur to me. Why did Moonlight, which is sort of like three episodes in yeah. two hours, right? Because mm-hmm. we're getting three phases in the main character's life. And and that is something that so far seemed to work a little bit better in terms of this pacing to me or the shifting from one segment to the next. And maybe that'll level out and even out as, again, I'm only four in of 10, so I'm not even halfway there. But it's something I am curious about and want to watch. I don't know if you detected any of that in what you've seen. I did actually in episode one because it felt like the plot sped up pretty quickly to get our characters in motion. And maybe maybe I was okay with it, Josh, because I wanted them to get in motion. Sure. I was so, so ready for them to leave this place that I was okay with it. But I was aware while watching it that from the moment she says, I'm not leaving here, I'm not going anywhere, it's as if bang, 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 three really terrible things happen in a row that you know seal the deal that, of course, she's going to leave. You know, there isn't that kind of space that I felt that we got more of in episode two and actually even later in episode one. But again, maybe I was I was okay with it because I wanted them to start their journey and I wanted to get out of that space as well. I suppose we do have to at least touch on, if we're going to throw out some superlatives, the score here as well. Another collaboration with Nicholas Brittell. And there are elements to the score here that feel like the material itself, grounded in this historical reality that feels traditional and feels familiar. And yet he manages to make it still have that element of magic to make it feel just a little bit otherworldly, but it's just a little bit. It's it's so subtle that it just insinuates a little bit and it puts you in the right headspace to accept these kind of challenges to the historical record that that do come with the material. But again, I do think it's very subtle. It's not as if he's using a bunch of effects or bizarre instrumentation, at least that I'm aware of, to make you feel that kind of eeriness. It's not trying to force itself on you in that way, but just like in Moonlight and if Beale Street could talk, extremely effective. Yeah, and it's working in concert with, you know, the the sound design, which mm-hmm. so many, you know, the insects, so much of this is taking place outside and those insects are constant. Um, it's yeah, it's beautiful work. Another nice musical touch is the use when the end credits come up after each episode of uh, anachronistic contemporary yeah. songs, which kind of just give you a little bit of a jolt. And, right. and that's also in episode one. Yeah. Yeah. That's also um, I wanted to mention a few things that I said. I feel like this is in conversation with that's something that Lovecraft Country did the HBO series from last mm-hmm. year. Not entirely successful, I, I don't think, but 
it, it did. It was also kind of like a history of scants. You know, it used horror sci-fi to tell this story uh, of a black man living in segregation, 1950s U.S. And um, so doing some similar things. The other thing from last year that uh, this made me think of was Antebellum, which that's the Janelle Monet um, film that I think I'm the only person who actually liked last year. But that, you know, that got a lot of flack for being this sadistically generic slavery drama. Mm-hmm. Um but similar to how Underground Railroad is working so far, you could say that for episode one in some ways, and you could say that for the first act of Antebellum, and they both – Antebellum takes a wilder turn, but it kind of takes this turn that reframes what we think we're seeing. So so just wanted to you know put one more plug in there for Antebellum. And then lastly, of course, Toni Morrison's Beloved, the, the book, of course, and then the Jonathan Demi to bring up Demi again, the adaptation. That's where I see Cora's relationship with her mother, You know, this idea that of the brutal choices that an enslaved mother is forced to make in regard to her children. It just brings reading that book just it it brought historical horror straight down to the deeply personal and intimate. Mm-hmm. And I think that element of the Underground Railroad with Cora and her mother is working in a similar way. The other piece I was thinking about a little bit while watching the Underground Railroad was Harriet. And not just because it's the last kind of slave drama that I saw, but because it did something I wasn't a fan of that I think the Underground Railroad is doing better or at least isn't making the same mistake. And that is it used this kind of sense of magical realism or the supernatural, the mystical with her character and these spells she had that I actually think worked against the material and the character and that it seemed to make her actions really not her own. It, it it took away her agency somehow as a character. We talked about that a little bit, I think, when we gave the movie some time on the show, or at least I remember giving it a brief review. But watching that film, it was as if everything she was doing or a lot of her significant actions were being dictated by some other force. And I, I was a little nervous that maybe that's where this would go as well, because it does start out in such a fantastical way and has these elements to it. But it doesn't, or at least it hasn't so far. Yeah, I think that worked a little bit better for me in Harriet. I, I liked how that kind of made her a profit figure, but I would agree that so far Underground Railroad is is a more successful take at the on this sort of material. One last part I wanted to bring up, and it's tough without really getting into the details of it here, but there's an element in episode two that I thought was really provocative, where we see white characters framing the slave experience. And this is another moment where it feels like the series is in dialogue with us right now in real time, where I don't think you can help but watch it and think about when these types of stories are told by white filmmakers or by white artists. But it isn't provocative just for the sake of being provocative. It doesn't feel like Jenkins is using it here, and I'm sure, of course, that it was part of the Whitehead material, but it doesn't feel like Jenkins is using it just to make a point or get a jab in or to feel topical at all. It really does feel like just another violation of these characters and their experience. Yeah, we would have to really get into spoilers to to dig into exactly what's going on there. I will say if... Okay, if the Underground Railroad is not going to work for someone, I could see them using that element and saying, listen, this entire series is essentially doing 
the same thing. Mm. And that's been the accusation. And I know there is, um, there is exhaustion from, from some people in terms of slavery dramas. And interestingly, you'll, you'll read black critics who have this critique. And I think that was part of the critique of antebellum as well. Now, I would argue Antebellum has a twist. Its twist works similarly to that sequence in episode two. I think it's saying similar things to how we treat history today, how we present history today, Mm -hmm. let's just say, which that sequence is getting at. It's really complicated, very provocative, and I cannot wait to see how it's received once this comes out. And yeah, that is going to be this Friday, May 14 on Amazon Prime. From the underground to the top of the world, we'll conclude our 40s noir marathon next with 1949's White Heat, plus the results of our movie Crime Boss poll. Stay with us. saving up all my pennies in my piggy bank for this day. This is going to be an emotional roller coaster. The odds are against you. But there's a chance, right? There's a chance, Josh, that we will finally get to see movies like that one, a movie we've been waiting to see for a year or more now, In the Heights, starring Anthony Ramos, of course, the breakout play from Lin-Manuel Miranda, translated to the big screen it might be the first movie i actually see in a theater for the first time i know you've had that experience but if it is in the heights i'll feel pretty good about that you know they're they're already screening it i was so tempted to go to one of those screenings but i figured we wouldn't be talking about it for a month i want it to be fresh hold off and though i try my best to avoid getting a sense of reactions what i have seen a little bit on letterboxd twitter so far sounds good. I mean, people I trust have come out of this pretty positive, so cannot wait. Next week on Film Spotting, we'll have our summer movie preview, and as our previews usually do, it will take the form of our top five questions about the summer movie season. If you've got a question about a summer movie or a title you want to make sure we don't overlook, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. If In the Heights is on your mind, you do have to sing your voicemail. You can also make your voice heard by taking part in the new Film Spotting poll, which asks you if you can only see one film this summer, which one will it be? And we gave you these options, though we'll admit that we forgot to include one of them, until after it had already gone live to film spotting newsletter subscribers. But we're not going to say which one, Josh, the options are. A Quiet Place Part 2, that opens May 28th. That might be the first movie you see in a theater, Adam, because I think we have plans to review that Yeah, we're going to review it. A Quiet Place Part 2, then In the Heights, that's June 11. F9, I understand that's a Fast and Furious film, Adam. Do I have that correct? Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. June 25 is the release for F9. Black Widow comes out July 9. Space Jam, A New Legacy. I know you can't wait 
for that one, Adam. You yeah. you were a big Space Jam fan back in the was that nineties? I skipped I skip the old legacy. I'm gonna skip the new legacy too. <laughs> that one opens July 16. The Green Knight, which people are salivating over on Twitter, directed by David Lowry, starring Dev Patel. So yeah, I guess I can understand that opens July 30. And then your last option here in the poll, Candyman, directed by trivia spotting vet Nia DaCosta. She did That's join right. us for one of our trivia spotting events, and her film opens August 27. Do you have an obvious pick there, Adam? First, the F and F9 stands for family. <laughs> Don't forget that, Josh. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that's yeah. what that series is really mm-hmm. about. It's what it's really about. For me, it's the aforementioned In the Heights. I think that's it. I think if I could only see one, it's that one. I can eliminate a few of those. I already eliminated Space Jam. Black Widow, I'm curious about the director there, Kate Shortland, making... That film coming from her art house background to the MCU, which seems to be all the rage these days. Of course, I am very curious about Candyman as well. But right now, I'm in the headspace for as good a time as possible. And I'm not saying that the Fast and Furious movies aren't a good time, but maybe I'm just more in the mood, Josh, for singing and dancing than ridiculously absurd car tricks and stunts. Fair enough. Fair enough. I would probably lean towards In the Heights as well. I am very much looking forward to that, except for the fact that we do have Nia DaCosta's Candyman. I mean, that is, I watched the original for the first time last year in preparation, and it's such a fascinating text that is ripe for reinterpretation. Even before Nia showed up to play Mm -hmm. trivia spotting with us, I was looking forward to this one. So I'm going to go with Candyman. Well, maybe that pick will help get her back on Trivia Spotting. We would love to have you, Nia, if somehow you are listening to this. You can vote in the poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. Also on next week's show, Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, and if you did, boy, a very well-reviewed so far performance from one Adam Kempinar. (laughs) Uh Here's a bit of our last massacre. I wish I'd had a mother like me instead of nice. Nice gets you fuss. I didn't like my mother either, so what? I fussed gave you a gift. You cursed me. You're a monster. Spilled milk, baby. That last line, that was fun to say. Spilled milk, baby. <laughs> Spilled milk, baby. I may co-op that and use it in everyday life. I have enough kids certainly running around the house to say it to. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, May 17th. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it on next week's show. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, Adam, it's a film we weren't brave enough to tackle. We flirted with it. and then We embarrassed ourselves enough. And then pulled away. Part one of their Fighting Spirits pairing is this week. The pairing, the new Mortal Kombat, which we could have seen. We could have reviewed, Adam. And they're mm-hmm. pairing that with John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. Inspired. I love this. I, I mean, I've been kind of looking for an excuse to revisit Big Trouble in Little China for years. And finally, here it is, given to me by the next picture show. Yeah, I guess I'm still a little bit surprised that the sophisticates over the next picture show actually talked about Mortal Kombat ahead of us, a.k.a. Ryu and Ice Guy. 
I mean, that's who we are. We, yes, we are. That's, that's mm-hmm. the, when we check into fancy hotels on our film spotting tours. Those are uh-huh. the names we give at the front desk. You're right. You, I'm ice guy. I have heard, and now I'm really going to embarrass myself further because maybe this was always the case in the Mortal Kombat universe. I've heard ice guy is the bad guy in this mm. in this adaptation. The 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 guy I always played is now the villain uh-huh. again. Maybe I was always playing the villain, just never knew it. Sure. It's very possible. This is very revealing because you're also a big fan of Iceman, undoubtedly the villain of Top Gun back in the eighties, and yet you defend him too. I don't think so. I don't think you want to bring that up, Adam. That that that's a loss. (laughs) I'm standing by it. That's a big L in your column. (laughs) I'm standing by it. The next picture show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Fiff, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Koski. New episodes of the next picture show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcast. It's a great show. Listen to it, download it, subscribe, and you can get more info at nextpictureshow.com. Net. One way you can support our show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. You get special benefits for your $5 a month subscription, like early show downloads and monthly bonus episodes. Talked about Hal Ashby's shampoo from 1975 a few weeks ago. We're going to do some more 70s blind spotting. Give our listeners a vote between three Robert Altman films that we haven't seen. One of them I've seen, MASH. But the other two, I really need to catch up with. You need to see all three. Three Women is one of the other contenders. And California Split is also in the mix. We will put that vote up here shortly for our family members to vote on. And then as we're taping this, we're a few days away from trivia spotting 10 to Yuma. Saturday, May 15th. No theme this time, not going with a certain decade, just going general movie trivia. Got some new captains in the mix. Got some great returning captains. It'll be great fun for all, Josh. Can you tease us with a captain? It sounds like Nia DaCosta is not returning this time. We hope to get her in the future, but can you give us a name or two? It won't be Nia DaCosta, but I will give you two hints. One is going to be a member of the Slash Film cast. Oh, Okay. And another is going to be a contributor and a very fine contributor to RogerEbert.com. Both first-time players. First-time players. Very exciting. Yep. Okay. You can also get an annual membership. Sign up now. Get a 10% discount. Basically get over one month free with those special benefits. Patreon.com slash filmspotting. On my challenge, by the ancient laws of combat, we are met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all. Who holds sway over the five points? Us natives born rightwise to this fine land or the foreign hordes defiling it. I was so tempted just now to really scrunch up my face and try to do this whole part as Bill the Butcher, but I mean, I'm not a good enough actor. You're on an acting role. You're, you're, no. <laughs> you might as well no. keep going. Speaking of butchering, before we get to our 40s noir marathon review of White Heat, which features Jimmy Cagney as gang boss Arthur Cody Jarrett, we're going to get to the results of the film spotting poll a couple weeks back. We asked you, looking ahead to this White Heat conversation, what is your favorite movie crime boss performance just from this century? We're not going all the way back. Jimmy Cagney, not eligible. Your choices 
Daniel Day-Lewis as Bill the Butcher from, of course, 2002's Gangs of New York. Or you could go Denzel Washington as Frank Lucas in American Gangster, Jack Nicholson as Frank Costello in The Departed, Jackie Weaver as Smurf Cody in 2010's Animal Kingdom, or we go back to Scorsese, The Irishman, Joe Pesci as Russell Buffalino, or what about Ray Fiennes as Harry Waters in 2008's In Bruges? If none of those options work for you, you could write in a candidate. You could go with other. And we may get into this a little bit. Who constitutes truly a crime boss versus just a very big kind of larger than life criminal? Doesn't Ray Fiennes just appear like in one scene? Of in Bruges, maybe we hear his voice, but I feel like he just shows up at the end for the finale. (laughs) And yet it seems based on the voting, Josh, he made an impression on our listeners. Indeed. Now, if you had someone in mind other than these options, you could have voted other. 3% of the vote went that way. But here we get to the options we gave you. And in last place was Denzel Washington's Frank Lucas got 5% of the vote. Jackie Weaver got 9% of the vote. Jack Nicholson's Frank Costello, little jump up here in the poll, 15% of the vote just behind Joe Pesci's Russell Buffalino, who received 16% of the vote. Up at the top here, though, yep, Ray Fiennes did come in second place with 22% of the vote as Harry Waters, but it went to Daniel Day-Lewis as Bill the Butcher with 31% of the vote. All those options, Daniel Day-Lewis took almost a third of the vote. Evan Wilcox, hey Evan, says, of these, it's got to be Daniel Day-Lewis's Bill the Butcher. So great, but how could you put a Denzel performance on here that's not Alonzo Harris in Training Day? Crime boss of the century so far, for sure. Josh, do you think that Alonzo Harris from Training Day is eligible for this list? Or is he out on a technicality? Right, I think this is what you're hinting at, right? He's a bad cop, essentially, Probably he's a criminal. He's a criminal, probably like overseas, maybe. I don't know. Is he in cahoots? He's in cahoots with others, but I don't know that he's Mm -hmm. a crime boss. Yeah. I don't know if he is either. Now, it's been a while since I have seen Training Day, and maybe near the end, there's an implication that he's kind of running a syndicate of some kind, but I don't think so. I just think he's just kind of on his own. He's like a a lone wolf. King Kong ain't got nothing on him, Josh. (laughs) I, I do remember that. I think he might be running like a whole network of these police officers who are on the take or something like that. So I guess he would be Hmm. the boss of them if I'm remembering correctly, but still a little bit of a different category in my mind. Yeah. But Evan, we get it. And I think that is a significantly better performance. I actually think Training Day is a better movie than American Gangster as well. All right, here come a couple of nominations for someone we didn't offer as an option. David C. says, for the spine-tingling performance, Jackie Weaver in Animal Kingdom gets my vote, with Ben Kingsley's performance in Sexy Beast, a close second. Roxanne Baker had the same thought. Ben Kingsley deserves a spot for Sexy Beast. I had nightmares after his chilling performance and another mention of Kingsley here, but Alan Barry ultimately goes in another direction. Kingsley is great in Sexy Beast, but I think Ian McShane is the boss in that film. And he's equally great, so that's my pick. Also, a shout-out for Niels Airstrup in A Prophet Who Is Terrifying. Great additional mention there from A Prophet. And yeah, I think Alan's correct. Another technicality in terms of just criminals on screen, bad guys on screen. I mean, all-time movie villains, Ben Kingsley in Sexy Beast, I think has to be part of the conversation. We also heard from Tim Stevens, who says, coming at you from Newington, Connecticut, home of the world's smallest natural waterfall. 
Well, hmm. thanks for that, Tim. I voted Fines. He feels both the most cartoonish and the most real to me at once. We often give crime bosses too much credit for being wildly geniuses when really most are horrible, brutal, impulsive men. Fines is all that with some truly cracking dialogue. The others on the list might be smarter or scarier, but Harry Waters is the only one that feels like an accurate portrait of a crime boss. Can I just put in a request that anyone who writes in or makes a comment leaves just a random fact about where they live. Yeah. The, mo- the more obscure, I, the better. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. And I like it too, that just talking about a waterfall, even if it's the world's smallest natural one, it immediately just relaxed me a mm. little bit. We're talking about Ray Fines and that big brutish performance. And just having that note about the waterfall just calmed me. Josh. I'm sure it's a lovely waterfall. One more comment here from Jeremy Webney Berman. This is a fine list of performances, but there are some absolutely ridiculous omissions. William Hurt gives 10 minutes of the greatest acting of the century in history of violence. He comes out of nowhere and absolutely dominates the movie. However, my vote must go to Leandro Fermin as Lil Zay in City of God. He is ferocious, terrifying, both incredibly human and larger than life at the same time, and ultimately a figure of tragedy on par with any Shakespearean king, prince, or general. All right. So, Adam, you said that uh, you preferred what to Training Day. You preferred Training Day to the other Denzel American film, right? Gangster. American Gangster. Yeah. All right. Well, let me let me say something more outrageous. I actually prefer City of God to Gangs of New York. I think they're both doing similar things. I'm going to say hmm. City of God is the better film. I think there's probably a lot of people that feel that way. City of God is a pretty revered film. At least I've always thought it was. I haven't seen it since it came out in 2002, a movie Sam and I saw together at the Chicago Film Festival before film spotting was a thing. And I do not remember it really at all. So I can't speak to Lil Zay. I will say Sam especially should feel great shame in leaving out William Hurt. That is some capital A acting. It may have been the biggest on-screen performance we had talked about at all up to that point in film spotting's history. And I think History of Violence came out in 2005. It was our number one film of that year, a shared number one. So it's not like we talked about a lot of big performances, but that turn by William Hurt is truly something. And I think it's pretty great. It's pretty fun to watch anyway. And he absolutely should have been part of this. Are you saying this poll was flawed, Adam? I'm saying it is a classic, deeply flawed trademark film spotting poll. Okay. Yes, I am. We've done our job then. Yep. Thanks to everyone who voted in that deeply flawed poll and who left a comment. Again, you can vote in our current poll. If you can only see one summer movie, which one is it? At filmspotting.net. Supposing you want to push in a place like Fort Knox and uh, grab yourself a couple of tons of gold. What's the toughest thing about a job like that? Getting inside the joint. A silver dollar for the gentleman on the balcony. Right on a button. Getting in. Which brings me to a story Ma used to tell me when I was a kid. A story about a horse. Uh, way back, there was a whole army trying to knock over a place called Troy. And getting nowhere fast. Couldn't even put a dent in the walls. And uh, one morning, one morning, the people of Troy wake up, look over the walls, and the attacking army disappeared. Men, boats, the works. Taking a powder. But they left one thing after them. A great big wooden horse. That is James Cagney in 1949's White Heat. It is, and I say this with sadness, Adam, the final film in our 40s noir marathon. I kind of wish this one could just keep going. It's a very different 
kind of picture than I think the other titles we have in the marathon. More of a straight-up crime thriller compared to the other films we've seen. Definitely a gangster picture, I think you could say. Though it is a film that distinguishes itself with some pretty brutal violence and that memorable lead performance by Cagney as Arthur Cody Jarrett. Psychotic criminal with a mother complex, along with an actual mother, Jarrett also notably suffers from frequent debilitating headaches that can only be relieved by the massaging of said mother. Now, Ma is played by Margaret Wincherly. Jarrett's crew also includes his wife, played by Virginia Mayo. Steve Cochran is part of the crew, too, as the conniving Big Ed Summers. And then this is, you know, this is an undercover cop picture as well, on top of everything else that it is. Mm -hmm. So we have Vic Pardo, played by Edmund O'Brien, going undercover in Cody's gang. We last saw Edmund O'Brien in Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker, one of the two men who are taken hostage in that film, which was part of last year's Overlooked Auteurs Marathon. White Heat, it was directed by Raul Walsh, whose career dates back to the very early silent era, and he continued making films through the early 60s. Now, Adam, I understand that The Professor... Nathaniel Myers, back from He's sabbatical. Back. He was <laughs> took a few marathons off uh, from setting up our discussions, but he is back. And so we wanted to start with a voicemail from Nathaniel. Hello, Adam and Josh. First of all, many congrats on another great marathon. As is so often the case, I feel like the film spotting family came out the other side having discovered some really unexpected gems. Things like Detour and This Gun for Hire. As for White Heat, well, first of all, I will say that I had a kind of twisted pleasure watching it on Mother's Day. I felt like Cody Jarrett would have approved. And it definitely had its cold-blooded moments. Those opening minutes especially had some pretty brutal killing. To say nothing of the grisly scalding by steam that we see. On a narrative level, I really loved the way it seeded certain information that you just knew was going to come back to haunt its characters. I think the most stressful of which was probably all the business around the photograph of Hank's fake wife in prison. But the clear point of interest for me has to be Jarrett, and more importantly, Cagney's performance. You know, throughout the film, I thought the nature of his particular psychosis was pretty unclear, to the point that I wondered whether he was insane or if he just had the occasional bad migraine and an uncomfortably deep abiding love for his mother. I even thought the film might want us to question whether he's actually mad or if he's just playing at it. His incredible fit of anguish in the prison mess hall is surely a thing to behold, but the next time we see him, he's back to plotting in a way that makes you wonder how deep the calculations go. Or at least they did for me. But, you know, in the end, it just didn't matter. Because whatever is happening in that final scene, the thin line between madness and playing madness has certainly fizzled. And Cagney goes full-on maniacal supervillain. Frankly, I thought it was great. Still, there's no doubt that it is a big performance, and so I'm curious to hear where you both landed on it, and to hear a bit about what you thought about the film more generally. I hope all is well, guys. Thanks so much. It is always great to hear from the professor. Thank you so much for that, Nathaniel. And I'm in lockstep with him here on almost everything. First of all, I did not watch this on Mother's Day, though I agree there is something perfect about that, or at least perfectly twisted about that. This is yet another film in this marathon that is cold-blooded, especially Cagney's character. There's some brutal moments in it, as Nathaniel said. And yet I thought, and I wonder if you agree with me, Josh, it was actually the most polished 
of all the films in the marathon. There's been a lot of ragged edges to these movies so far. That's kind of why we picked them. We've seen all the big, super well-known or really important, capital I, important noirs, or at least most of them. And these have all slid under the radar for the both of us. And maybe the crudeness, if you will, contributed to us overlooking them. The crudeness also contributes to what makes them so fun to watch. And this one feels a little more slick than all the other ones in the marathon, maybe to its detriment. But I definitely agree with Nathaniel as well on the way Walsh and the screenplay give us some of those early fake outs that have us on the edge of our seat. And he mentioned the one where Cagney and some other guys in the jail cell try to kind of test or prank Vic Pardo, the Edmund O'Brien character, by taking out a portrait of his wife from a package to see if he'll recognize that they've got it on their desk and he doesn't notice. Well, the problem with this is if he doesn't notice it's his wife, then that would be a fairly big reveal that maybe he's not who he says he is and Cagney already doesn't trust him. So that is a very tense scene. But the other one is the bit with Bo Creel, who is someone he says early on, no, you got to get him out of there before I go into prison. He'll know I'm a cop. I arrested him. He'll definitely recognize me. And pretty early on, it pays off. Like, you know, of course, it's going to. He gets in there and Creel's somehow still there. And he's got to figure out a way to maneuver himself out of that. So he doesn't have his identity discovered is really nicely intense. But then you think that's it. And they they give you another little yeah. twist pays, involving pays Creel. Off twice, right? Yeah, it pays off twice. So I thought that was really great. And then, of course, at the heart of it all, and really, I don't know that I would have enjoyed the movie that much overall if it wasn't for him. There's Jimmy Cagney as Cody Jarrett, and maybe my favorite line. We can talk about those moments that Nathaniel touched on: the freak out, the emotional freak out in the mess hall when he finds out about his mother or the end of the film, the famous ending to this film. But my favorite line reading is maybe just when he discovers Pardo and he says, a copper, (laughs) a copper with that, with that devious devilish smile on his face where he actually is so angry and, you know, so filled with rage in this moment, but also maybe a little bit, impressed that I think he's excited that this will lead to violence. I think that's what it is. That's a great point. See, now you, you, you figured out a way to make it much smarter than what I was going to say, but I was watching this movie thinking about psycho because of the mother son relationship. (laughs) I was thinking a lot about, I know Sam said this on letterbox and I'm right there with him. I was thinking about Nicholson as the Joker Mm. from Tim Burton's Batman watching this performance seems like it had to be an inspiration. I was even thinking a little bit about heat watching this film, not that Cody Jarrett and De Niro's character are really similar at all, but something about kind of this underlying idea of, you know what, let's just pull off the last big score you know, and then we can actually get away right. and sort of enjoy life, you know, and there is something to his willingness to be violent and that lack of hesitation that does make me think a little bit of Neil McCauley, De Niro's character. Again, not a psychopath, but someone who says, you know, I will not hesitate. I'll do whatever I have to do in any moment. You definitely get that with Cagney's character as well. But that performance here, one where he is big 
in such a small package, right? Five, five, when you Google Jimmy Cagney, and yet he fills every inch of the screen and seems like he's bigger than every other performer on screen. And yet they all actually seem like they're doing something way more stylized than him. He's the most natural performer probably in the whole thing. Well, how about uh, another performance that had to be inspired by it, Finney, in Miller's Crossing. I saw a lot of, you know, Miller's Crossing elements here, a Coen Brothers film I know we both love. Marsha Gay Harden's character in Miller's Crossing named Verna, okay? So Uh, (laughs) Virginia Mayo playing Verna here. mm -hmm. Yeah, before I get into Cagney, just real quickly, because I think you're right about how professionally made this film is, and I think what that means is we might glide over what Walsh brings as director, but he makes a really good heist movie. He makes a really good police investigation thriller. He makes a really good prison drama. And as we said, an undercover cop story. He does all of this in one film. And and each one of those genres is honored and executed really confidently. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's what we have with Walsh here. But Cagney, oh my goodness. I mean, it's hard to imagine... You know, I think the word big comes to mind because it is. It is big, but also because it's easy to, to describe with dis, with de- decades of distance, this is fun, right? He's fun. Mm-hmm. He's chewing up the screen. But I wonder if at the time he wasn't just more scary when, when audiences saw him. And here's another performance probably influenced Joe Pesci and Goodfellas. Remember when you first saw Joe Pesci and Goodfellas? It was big. He was funny, but he was scary. Right. He was, he was ultimately scary. What do you you mean? He was funny. Exactly. What do you mean? Like he was, like he was a clown, like he was there to amuse you, Josh. And think about how that scene turns, right. Is, is where you are amused by it and you're, you're laughing at it. And then it takes that turn. The turn is what Cagney has in, Mm -hmm. in this performance. And how about the moment? So Virginia Mayo as his wife, there's a guy, you know, the get when he's making a move on her big ad and Cagney shows up, kills him, right? A half second later, what does he do? He offers Verna a warm smile his arm. and his arm, a mm-hmm. gentlemanly arm. And that's Cagney is like just turning that on a dime. And to your point, making it natural, not doing like yeah. psycho shtick. And then no. like, it's, it's just like, you believe that this guy turns like that. And and then you do have the big moments that are just more fun. I mean, the way this guy drives, it's like, he's looking for a squirrel to squish, you know, and he's, not, <laughs> he's not, I'm yeah. not even talking in a getaway scene. I think it's the scene where he's pulling up to the hotel um, and no one's after him, but he's still driving like a maniac uh, or right. the, or the language he uses when he wants the radio turned off. What does he tell one of his henchmen? Kill it, you know? And everything is violent with him. He's just, you referenced his size. The word pugnacious is had to either, yeah. either, either Cagney was born because that word existed or somehow that, that word was developed after Cagney came on screen because it just fits him so perfectly. And I think that for me, someone who can be suspicious of big performance sometimes is, is why this is so effective of yeah. a portrayal of a crime of a really scary crime boss. Yeah. Well, he also makes the vulnerability feel real. Like it doesn't just feel part of that psycho shtick that he gets these headaches and it's another opportunity really to kind of act out or, or act big and draw attention to himself. It really does feel as if he is in need 
of someone. He needs that kind of physical That's touch. It. And there's that is there's it. a moment, right? There's a moment that you you know, again, speaking of seeding elements, you know it's probably coming. We've seen what his mom does to soothe him. We've heard Edmund O'Brien's character joke about how he'll put on his best motherly routine that he basically, that's why he's there. He's taking the mother's spot, becoming a confidant to him. This is in prison. In prison. And it goes beyond just being a confidant in a scene where he finally does break down and he, he rubs the back of his neck in that moment. I don't know if you would, I think many people probably would call it that there's perhaps a romantic element being hinted at, but at minimum it's, it's affecting it. it it's moving, right? Which you don't expect from these two men in this setting, and certainly not from Jimmy Cagney. It's romantic. And if you notice, Adam, that moment, Max Steiner's score, which, you know, has been pretty kind of big and brassy, like it takes on this plaintive turn. I mean, it's more romantic than anything we get between Cody and Verna. I know he yeah. I know he carries her upstairs very pointedly and showily at one point, but I think this is a more romantic interaction between two people. What we see here, and you're dead right, it's because he's seeking that affection. And it goes to the little aside we learn at one point. I think one of the investigating police officers says something about how he pretended to have the headaches as a kid to get his mother's attention. Right. So there's a chance there is no physiological, uh, biolo- you know, biological yeah. element to these headaches. It is, it is purely to get someone to come and, and touch him and be vulnerable with him and his only way of expressing vulnerability himself. And so, as you said, that's a totally different layer he brings to the character. Yeah. Now, here's where maybe the polish comes into play to the movie's detriment, at least for me, a little bit. And this ties to something you said in terms of it being effective as kind of three different types of movies, including the police procedural, kind of a cop drama, is I felt like it went above and beyond even what you would expect from the late 40s in terms of sort of haze code moralizing. I was wondering, Hmm. Josh, almost if like J. Edgar Hoover finance this movie it feels like a government production almost and i know that it's not g-men it's not fbi agents but the treasury men yeah t-men yeah who are the good guys here right but how many times do we see them do something really impressive to zero in on Jarrett? like let's show how scientific and sophisticated oh, the we technology are is great at catching criminals like no matter how psychopathic or diabolical or clever they are we will catch them. We'll use math with protractors. <laughs> we'll use mask technology and spectrograph dirt analysis and advanced tailing You techniques. didn't like all that stuff? We'll even use radar. Like, I don't know that I didn't like it so much as I just felt like it was kind of a commercial for like government agency service or something like encouraging people to want to become a cop. I mean, I did, I did laugh at some of it. And I also felt like maybe I'd actually prefer to spend more time with Cody and his mom, right. And dealing with that whole drama than dealing with all the, all the math and such. It's a little, it's a little dry. Yeah. It's it's a little dry, but then also kind of the part that I felt like was truly the insult was 
the ending because the ending is spectacular. It's this amazing over the top kind of showcase for Cody Jarrett and him saying goodbye and delivering that great line, top of the world, Ma, except that isn't somehow, Josh, the ending of the film. I think this is probably one of those things that people always kind of get wrong. They say, oh, it's the last line of the movie. No, it just should have been the last line of the movie. Instead, the actual last line is the two cops, the two amazing T-men standing next to each other, and one of them says, Cody Jarrett. And then Edmund O'Brien says, he finally got to the top of the world. And it blew right up in his face. It's like, okay, guys, nice clunker. Thanks. Thanks for the <laughs> reminder. Thanks for the reminder that crime doesn't pay. How do you have a line in a moment like Top of the World, Ma, delivered by Jimmy Cagney there, and you don't just flash up the end? Yeah, their dialogue is way too much. I'm in complete agreement, but let me just give you two reasons. Maybe I don't agree with them, but two reasons. This is part of the Cagney brand, right? When you go back to 1931's The Public Enemy, where he established this persona, really. Right. And that was even more moralizing. I mean, that is like, if I'm remembering correctly, there's either a voiceover or a title card at the beginning, bla- mm-hmm. basically saying, we do not endorse what we're about to right. let you get frothy over for the next hour or whatever, you know? So it's kind of like the Cagney brand. But also here's where, you know, White Heat is smart is that it's going to give every audience member whatever they could possibly want. So if you're in it for Cagney and you just want to root for the psycho, you got plenty of scenes that do that, but it's, it's also going to give you a good guy. It's going to give you Edmund O'Brien as this undercover cop. And so I think that's, why that is tacked on there is kind of like, yes, to be moralizing in a way, to bring it back for those audience who would, audience members who'd go out and be shaking their heads, even if Cagney went down mm-hmm. in an explosion, that he got the last line. So it's just kind of ha- trying to have it a lot of different ways. Not the choice I would have made, but I can see why it went that direction. I do want to touch briefly, though, on Virginia Mayo as Verna, his wife. Kind of shocked that, you know, because mm-hmm. he, at first he's interacting with Ma. So you think like, okay, he's, he's Ma's the woman in his life. And then we see, no, in the bedroom at their hideout is Mayo. They introduce her snoring, right? I didn't make I that know. up. Isn't that the first? So memorable. I love yeah. it. I just I know. love that yeah. touch because for me, it, it's oddly endearing and communicates right away that she's not just a trophy. This is an actual woman. You know, Mm -hmm. this is, this is like a real living, breathing human being and not just some sort of pinup. And we've talked about how some noirs can depict their female characters that way. And I also like how we know very early on that Verna is playing both Cody and Big Ed against each other. And she's just, you know, it's a chess match for her. She just needs a place to land when the dust settles. And so she's constantly keeping them in balance. And how about the great line? My favorite line of hers, and I forget exactly when it comes, but he's he's complaining because um, the cops are are on his tail now. They're they're getting close, and he's complaining that someone must have betrayed them. And she just says, "It's always somebody tipped them. It's never that the cops are smart." So right. part of that is maybe feeds into what you were saying about you know this having to be glorifying the police so much. But I, mm-hmm. I just love how it's like she's going to call him out. You know, no matter bold, she's yeah. and and she like. It may cost her. There's there's another thing about Cagney is the violence towards women that so many of his characters express. But Mayo, you know, is not just a punching bag in this film, for sure. No, no. I think that 
it would be very easy to watch her in her first few scenes and think, oh, she's going to play the emotional dame or whatever. And she's just completely under his thumb and never pushes back. But you're right. There is real suspense around her character. Think of how much more lively the screenplay is just because you know that she's capable of undermining him. Right. That she that she is capable probably of of conniving him and getting what she wants, even though he kind of always seems like he's on to her at the end of the film. You never totally know. You feel like, you know what? He, he needs that. He needs that support, especially with that, Ma gone, that, you know, that exactly. Yeah. Even if he doesn't fully trust her, if he's getting the type of approval from her that he needs, then maybe he'll keep her around. But that's only even a possibility because of kind of the power she has as a character and as a woman in this movie. So I agree with you on Mayo. White Heat is currently available to rent on most digital platforms. You can also check your local library and interlibrary loan. We will officially close out the marathon next week. We're going to call the awards the Savages in honor of actress Anne Savage, who gave a very memorable performance, possibly the most memorable performance in the marathon as Vera, not Verna, in 1945's Detour. And I mean, come on, the Savages, just too perfect in terms of describing the overall tone of this marathon and these characters. Now, I have not done any prep. I know you did your homework. You have your picks already prepared. We'll see if you can tell a good lie here, Josh, and keep me in suspense. When you think about best lead performance from the marathon, mm-hmm. does Cagney have competition? It depends on how you define lead. Okay. Okay. Um, and the way I've defined it, let's just say, no, it's it's his. It's his. Okay. <laughs> well, spoiler alert, you're going Jimmy Cagney. I'm probably going Jimmy Cagney as well. But the other ones... We'll just have to wait and see. We will share our savages next week. And of course, you can find all the information you need about all our past marathons and this current marathon at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at filmspotting. I'm at Larson on film. In the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And that's where you can vote in the film spotting poll. What is your most anticipated movie of the summer? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out this week on digital, Joe Wright, he of My Beloved Atonement and also Pride and Prejudice and The Darkest Hour, has a new movie out. It's based on a 2018 best-selling book. This is the cast, Josh. Amy Adams, Gary Oldman, Julianne Moore, Anthony Mackie, Brian Tyree Henry, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Tracy Let's Why Aren't We All Just Beating a Path Right Now to Our Couch So We Can Get Prepared to Watch The Woman in the Window. I mean, it seems like it should be a big deal, right? Is this is this just another like COVID it. casualty of not Maybe. being sure how to distribute something when it's actually out? I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. I feel like it was supposed to come out last year. And yes, got pushed. And so now everyone's kind of forgotten about it. And it hasn't really gotten much promotional attention, or at least not enough that it's been on our radar. Now, I do remember reading the article about the writer of the book, long piece like New York Magazine or something about that writer. And 
the bizarre backstory on that person. And I don't know if that actually hurt Hmm. this in terms of the adaptation and maybe the scandal, if you will, about that writer. Scandal might be too strong of a word, but it's a really interesting, mysterious story. And if The Woman in the Window is half as mysterious and interesting, it'll be a pretty good movie. Maybe we'll catch up with it. Out in wide release, Spiral from the Book of Saw is out. Chris Rock, Samuel L. Jackson in this movie from the director of Saw. Now, he didn't make Saw 2, but he did make Saw 3, and he made Saw 4. I, Got that, Josh? I, it doesn't matter to me. Not, okay. I, I think I've endured three of the Saw pictures. Oh, man. That's three more than me. Oh, boy. Let me, <laughs> others will have to let me know how this is. Those Who Wish Me Dead also out with Angelina Jolie as a survival expert protecting a teen on the run from assassins and from a deadly forest fire. Taylor Sheridan wrote and directed it. He also wrote and directed Wind River, wrote Sicario and Hell in High Water. That's coming to HBO Max. But right now, we're not going to talk about any of those. Next week, we're going to devote the bulk of the show to our summer movie preview. We'll share our questions about the summer movie season. My number one might be, what's a movie theater? Do they still Spoilers. have them? <laughs> yeah. Is that a thing? Can I get popcorn at the movie theater? That's my number one summer movie question. Spoiler. You can. You can. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.